0: Uh, Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I've had a bit of a flu, so hopefully, my voice is somewhat clear and I don't go into a coughing fit. Um, So, I'm glad to be here and have the opportunity to talk a bit about my research um, that I'm undertaking at the Center for Criminology here at Oxford. Um, My work is going to be a bit different than some of the stuff we've been talking about before today, and in particular, even on this panel. the vast majority of the people who are in detention... Well, actually, I mean, detention itself is not part of the criminal justice system. It's an administrative sort of arm of the government related to uh, immigration. Um, so it's not... The people that are in detention aren't facing punishment, and there aren't sort of utilitarian justifications for their um, detention in terms of trying to produce good citizen subjects or rehabilitate people or reintegrate them into the community. So some of the things I'll be talking about um, don't quite line up, but I do really appreciate the um, previous speakers in terms of getting into the topics around well-being, around vulnerability, um, and around mental health. So I'm just going to start by giving some background um, on immigration detention in the UK for those of you who might not be so familiar. Um, at the moment, we have nine detention centres called immigration removal centres, or IRCs. Um, there's about a 3,566 bed space capacity, um, and in 2015, 32,466 people were entered detention at some point, and about. Usually around fifteen percent of these are women, and the top nationalities, um, in terms of the main countries of origin, are Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and Nigeria, which I think says a lot um, about the impacts of British Empire and patterns of colonial and post-colonial migration, as well as in, which, as well as in the way in which post-war immigration policies work to tie race and nationality and processes of inclusion and exclusion. So there are a variety of people who are detained in detention. Um, When I was doing my fieldwork, the detained fast track was still ongoing, um, but it's still possible for asylum seekers to be detained. There's also foreign national ex-prisoners. There's visa overstayers, um, foreign national with visa problems. So when I was doing my fieldwork, there were a lot of students particularly from India, Bangladesh, and Pakistan. And there's also undocumented migrants. And detention, really, the main reasons are administrative. Um, This is to determine identity, to prevent absconding, and to facilitate removal. And with the sort of rename from detention centers to removal centers, this idea that these places are sort of one's last stop on their migratory path and that they're going to be ejected sort of from the country from there um, kind of underscores this notion of, of facilitating removal. And in terms of how people leave detention, um, the UK does distinguish between removal itself and deportation, which the latter which applies to people who have been convicted of criminal offences. Some may agree to return voluntarily. I usually like to put voluntary in... Uh, you know, square quotes, because often from the confines of detention, we can question how voluntary such decisions are. Um, other people are released to the UK. Usually um, over half end up being released to the UK on some form of status. This could be temporary admission, immigration bail, or they could have received uh, regularized status, such as having their immigration case determined, um, such as maybe a, su- a su- successful asylum application. So some of what I'm talking about today is coming or based on um, my current research project, which uh in which I spent um about 150 days conducting ethnographic research um in four detention centers in the UK uh, in August <coughs> sorry, September 2013 to August 2014. Um so I did also did some interviews and focus groups as well as a survey that measured the quality of life in detention. Um I've also been doing post-detention field work, but I won't uh, talk about that today. So with this study, I'm not haven't been particularly interested in questions of mental health, but they definitely emerged as important to the lived experience of detention. Um, I primarily was concerned with talking to detainees about their experiences of being detained, as well as why they migrated to the UK in the first place, their histories there, or here, sorry, how they feel about home, their identity, and questions around belonging. But issues are around mental health and well-being definitely emerged um, in sort of aspects of day-to-day life and dealing with <coughs> the ever th- ever-present threat of removal or deportation um, and this eviction from the country that, that people were facing so I briefly mentioned this survey. Um, it's been developed by Mary Bosworth and Blarina Kalezi, um, based on one that Alison Liebling has developed um, to measure the quality of life in prisons, and they've developed, they've, pardon me, adapted it to the context of detention. Um, so during my fieldwork, I administered a couple hundred surveys. Um, um, Mary and Blarina did the analysis, and. From that, they found that there were very high levels of depression among those that uh, completed the survey. Um, meeting, I have to look up the terminology here, the L- HSCLD, which is the Hawkins Symptom Checklist Criteria for Depression, an abbreviated form of this is in the survey. Um, and they found that higher levels of depression were reported by women overall, by asylum seekers, And again, during my field work, I was also talking to people on detained fast track, which meant that they had to be detained as part of their asylum process. Um, People with health problems also reported higher levels of detention, or depression, pardon me, those who stayed in their rooms and were isolated, and longer-term detainees, as well as those who hadn't been to prison prior to detention. And the survey found that the higher levels of depression related to more negative evaluations of their well-being and their quality of life dimensions. Um, So this could be things like their their feeling of dignity, their safety, perceptions of staff decency, um, whether they thought immigration itself was organized and consistent or efficient uh, or fair, um, the health care they received, um, as well as their interactions with staff and any help they needed. Now, the Home Office itself recognizes through its own policies that particular individuals, such as pregnant women, elderly people, and torture survivors, have what they call special needs and should only be detained in exceptional circumstances. Yet, many do end up being detained with, I would argue, uh, administrative convenience winning out over concerns about such needs or issues. Now, there are a variety of factors that contribute to poor mental health in detention. Um, And I think many of these are, if not all, related to structural aspects of detention itself or the broader social context, economic context um, in which detainees or where people come from, basically, and why they migrate. Um, So, as I do present this sort of as a list... um, I think the factors should be thought as dynamic and intersecting rather than static or isolated. I might apply sort of sometimes at one point, they might apply in groups to different people. It just it depends, but for the sake of simplicity, I've kind of itemized them it here. So I think one of the probably most important aspects of detention in the UK that affects mental health or leads to poor mental health outcomes is the uncertainty of detention. So there is no length or statutory length on the. There's no statutory limit in the length of time that someone can be detained. So that means detention is indefinite. People don't know when they're going to be released, and they also don't know how they're going to be released. So if they're going to be successful in their immigration cases, or they're going to be removed or deported. So this uncertainty is experienced as highly distressing. With participants I spoke to, frequently referring to detention due to this uncertainty as a form of mental or psychological torture. So one of my participants in Cansfield House, he kind of described it this way of, of being stuck, where you can't move, you don't know what's going to happen in the future, you, you can't go back to the past, you're just stuck in this place, and you don't know, and he says that drives people crazy. Um, and I think that's a very you know, spot-on observation from... What I was also seen in detention. And detainees also bring with them different pre-existing vulnerabilities, such as mental health issues, their experiences of torture, sexual or gender violence. And these factors are often compounded in detention, and that can really negatively impact their mental health. Um, there's also issues around health, pre-existing health needs. Um, when I was doing work in Yarlswood, there are a lot of women who are pregnant. And that was extremely distressing for them, being able to meet just basic um, nutritional needs for themselves and also deal with worry about the stress that... Sorry, worry at that the stress of detention could cause miscarriages or just not knowing what's going to happen in that regard. Um, there's also issues around isolation due to language, disability, culture, or sexuality. So among some of the participants I talked to who identified as gay or lesbian often some isolated themselves due to homophobic bullying in some of the <coughs> centers um, and that was also very distressing and there were also issues around just mobility for individuals that were mobility impaired trying to get to different activities um, but they would need, need the staff in order to access um, things like a lift that weren't very readily available Um. Quickly here, I mean there's financial interpersonal stress. I mean generally people that end up in detention tend to be more poor than those who don't. Um, And detention itself causes a lot of stress in terms of people losing their jobs, being separated from their families, including their children and partners, their loved ones, um, and their communities. I think another big issue that relates to one's mental health is a perception of injustice and Ill- illegitimacy around detention, around deportation, around their treatment more generally, and this can uh, negatively impact mental health, producing feelings of sadness, anxiety, anger, and as well as grief. One of my participants um, at Cornbrook, right here, he, you know, he, he felt his treatment was unjust, and he was sort of very powerfully arguing that that. This is his life that is, um, you know, on hold, being ruined in his in his case, and he couldn't really believe that it would be fair for someone for the Home Office to separate him from his family, from the sort of only place he's known since he's been a kid, and not give him a second chance. And this this issue of not being given a second chance for him really, he struggled trying not to be too depressed about it. We also have things around issues around the length of detention and multiple detentions that cause stress. People might cycle in and out of detention on multiple occasions or be there for long periods of time. Um, some of the participants I spoke to, I think the longest person have been there for, in detention for three years and how that weighs on your mental health over time others um, unfortunately witnessed traumatic events in detention some participants I spoke with have, had witnessed um, suicide attempts and self-harm which is very upsetting for them as they try to struggle and help people um, you know, by cutting down ropes or helping people that may be bleeding um, and that's very, very upsetting there's also the fear of removal and... Uh, it's not uncommon for people who are going to be given a ticket or removal directions to be put in segregation or to be put on some 24 hour watch um, to make sure that they don't harm themselves. And this happened to one of my participants um, at Dover. And this is just an excerpt from my field notes. Um, I went to visit this man, Brent, um, in the segregation unit at Dover. Um, after he'd been given a ticket. And so I sort of describe here my experience of going into the segregation unit where he's sitting in a cell that's got a plastic kind of plexiglass door and he comes in to talk to me and just this looked so ruined. So I talk about in my notes how he's, you know, it looks in rough shape, but he explains that he's tried to kill himself by taking all this medication and yet still he can't sleep um, even though he's on antidepressants and uh, you know these sorts of the fear of removal for him he felt that if he went back to Trinidad and Tobago, that um, given the high rates of violent crime there he would likely be killed and he really worried about that and for many and he's not the only one say and maybe the truth or not of it is a different story but people sometimes at the time feel that they would rather die in here in the UK in detention than go back. So it can be very, very upsetting for people to be given a ticket. So unfortunately the list isn't exhaustive, but I think try to draw your attention to some of the more common factors that contribute to poor mental health in detention. So without trying to paint too gloomy a picture, because I know Caroline doesn't, like that kind of thing (laughs) Um, human beings are obviously remarkably resilient and we do make do the best we can in difficult situations not of our choosing Um, and although I did speak to a few people in detention that actually found detention to be a really great experience um, most people did suffer in some ways and really focused on coping. Um, some were more uh, resilient and they had better ability to do this than others. Um, so a lot of people go up by keeping busy, going to the gym, doing arts and crafts, undertaking paid employment at the centers, going to the library, playing pool and other games. Um, one of my participants, Michael, who's depicted here by the artist Things Chalk, he tried to keep himself occupied and stay headstrong by playing his PlayStation 3 and listening to music on his stereos. And others coped through going to the mosque or prayer room, um, as well as holding individual prayer sessions in rooms or other residential spaces. For my participant, Mary Jane, faith was very, very important for her. She felt that if she didn't have God, that she would go crazy. So that was where her source of strength and coping and resilience came from. Others looked to their peers, peer supports among other detainees. Some turned to staff. There were a lot of people I talked to who were on medication, pers- often prescribed by the centers in terms of their uh, antidepressants <coughs> and sleeping tablets. Others self-medicated through illicit drugs within the center, such as cannabis or the so-called legal highs of spice. Um, Some got support from their family and friends. Others turned to volunteer visitors as a way to cope. And some took to protest. This could be just writing letters um, and more, I guess, uh, direct action in terms of hunger strikes or sit-downs. as a way to assert some kind of agency and to, to have maintain some type of control over their lives. So it's really not a novel argument to say that immigration detention can exacerbate pre-existing mental health issues as well as produce new ones. And I think these are just some examples, but perceptions of uh, injustice, the uncertainty can really kind of work and feed into a sort of cycle of depression and anxiety both during detention and after release. And indeed, several of my participants who've been removed or released talked to me about experiencing nightmares related to their detention that lasted for several months. So the impact can be quite great. Um, And this isn't a particular surprise to the British government or to the Home Office. Um, It's quite aware of the mental health concerns related to immigration detention and about the sort of the so-called, the pardon me, the detention of so-called vulnerable groups. So since February last year, there's been a number of different reports. The last most recent one, the Shaw Review in January 2016, which is a 350-page <coughs> um, report that really looks directly into this issue of the detention of vulnerable persons, and... Um, and Mary Bosworth has a uh, literature review she contributed to that, which is um, on the border of Criminology's SSRN, which provides a good summary of the literature in relation to mental health and detention, if anyone is interested. But I think here we can see this, that there is this growing interest in improving the mental health of detainees, as well as limiting the detention of those that are deemed vulnerable. And I think this can range from genuine concerns about actual well-being, two, more, two issues around system inefficiencies, as well as the desire to reduce legal risks brought about through expensive or embarrassing litigation over human rights breaches that um, the UK government has, in fact, occurred. Um, so before I run out of time, I just haven't quite got a chance to, to really talk about this in too much detail, and I appreciate um, Marie's presentation That really was trying to problematize this idea about vulnerability and what do we mean by it. Um, And in sort of highlighting this trend and talking about mental health and vulnerability, I don't want to suggest that the government or NGOs or activists or academics should refrain from raising issues about vulnerability or mental health in detention. Rather, I guess I'm concerned that in this context, it's also important to be alert to governmental attempts to deploy discourses of vulnerability to pursue other political interests, such as the maintenance of detention for detainee populations who are deemed not vulnerable. So I'm interested in how we can talk about vulnerability in relation to immigration detention without recreating categories of detainees who are seen as less or more deserving of or resilient to this form of confinement. So I'm wondering if we're seeing a governmental preoccupation with vulnerability and mental health as a way to reform the system of immigration detention without challenging its underlying structures and practices which inevitably inevitably wear on people's mental health and test their resilience. So I think in the current context, as the government works on reforming the system of detention, that it's important to interrogate the power relationships that underpin who gets defined as vulnerable and then those who don't. Um, Iris Marion Young has really challenged this idea that vulnerability is more exceptional than normal, and I think uh, some of the presenters here today have noted that we all face different vulnerabilities, we all have mental health issues or needs, um, and that sort of those who get recognized, um, I think there's questions of power there that's important to consider, so thank you very much.